My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am Iron Man. Hello, welcome to the Post Credit Pod. I'm just going to jump right into it today because I'm very excited about today's show. We're wrapping up our Mando Season 1 recap with Episodes 7 and 8 ahead of Season 2 dropping this Friday. We're talking about the Star Wars prequels, which is just going to be a dunkathon for me, which I'm so excited about. But most importantly, maybe, is the crazy news that has dropped over the last few days across the superhero spectrum. The, f- the first is major casting for Disney Plus's Moon Knight. The second is surprising casting for Zack Snyder's Snyder Cut. Let's start with Moon Knight because that dropped just a couple hours ago. So Eric and I are kind of chomping at the bit to talk about it. Eric, Oscar Isaac is Moon Knight. I mean, this is arguably one of the best actors we have right now. He is probably a a younger kind of Pacino in a sense. And while I was bummed that they didn't get a full-on Jewish actor for this role, I'm so enamored with Oscar Isaac as an actor in Hollywood and as a performer that my hype levels have gone through the roof and it's enough to ameliorate the lack of Jewishness for me. I mean, this this is a huge get for Marvel, right? Yeah, well, I was gonna joke since you're our in-house Jew, you should get the <laughs> you should get the first say about this casting because someone I oddly appreciate to- that. <laughs> <laughs> of course, um, you, you know my mom is part tribe. Her her mom was Jewish, so my mom was half Jewish. So I don't know what that makes me, <laughs> but it does make me hype for the show. Regardless, someone responded to our tweet. Being pretty bummed that that it was not a full-blown Jew cast in uh, the role. So had somebody – so you're saying that the talent that they got in the role wipes away that concern for you. But if it wasn't someone as talented, would you have been more bummed? Yeah, I probably would have been more bummed, which isn't exactly fair. But, but, but I, I, my point is it speaks to the power of this yeah. casting. Exactly. And I think also if we want to go this route as well, uh, it is cool seeing a a Latino hero on screen, which we've never gotten before. So I understand that it's not exactly the type of kind of diverse representation we might have been expecting, but it still does hit a notch and it's all in the name of progress. And it's just such a good casting that it really does diffuse some of the tension for me. Because I mean, I personally think Oscar Isaac is a future Academy Award winner. And to get some who, who, fun fact that I was going to bring up, he doesn't even have a nom yet, which shocked me. I couldn't believe it. Not, not yet, but I think he's someone whose reputation in Hollywood at all levels, whether that be writers, directors, producers, critics, what have you, uh, is so solidified as a talent to watch that it does, like the, the, the reputation precedes, you know, whatever validation might be coming from awards bodies. I mean, if you look at the films that he's put out in the past few years, he's been in a mix of as big, big budget as you could get in the Star Wars and X-Men films. He's been in probably one of our favorite genres, like niche sci-fi when it comes to Ex Machina and Annihilation. Um, He's done crime dramas. He's going to be in Dune. So he was in that sort of, uh, what was it? The Ben Affleck, uh, like 
Triple Frontier. Yeah, I mean, which was not good, but it was still a big deal. Awesome opening uh, action heist scene, though. Yeah, so if you talk about big names, this dude right now is pretty much as big as it comes. Um, He's shown that he could do it all. He's shown that he could carry something on his own. I think that, as I said to you in a text, I think that this speaks to the plans that they have for Moon Knight. Yes, let's talk about that, because that's important. So what I had said to you is like, you know, had it been somebody like, had they cast Shia or uh, Oliver, Oliver Cohen Jackson, Co- Cohen Jackson, sure, they're a name, but they're not a movie star name, right? Like they're enough to get guys like you and I hyped, but not somebody that really crosses over into selling a film. Oscar Isaac is the complete inverse of that. He is a movie star name. So the so pretty much my first thought was, okay, this tells me that he's going to play a massive role in the films because you don't have a a name this big B playing what is the MCU's closest thing that they have to Batman outside of you know maybe Daredevil sort of but in terms of both the aesthetics and the characters backgrounds and clear delusions (laughs) um you know this is a this is a big step forward for the MCU so while I think it's a it is a way to draw eyeballs towards the show, I also think that it speaks towards how much the character is going to be in these films. Yeah, I mean, a- you pointed out Blade first thing. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, to build off that, Moon Knight is also a character steeped in the supernatural, werewolves, Dracula, etc. So he naturally fits into what's going on with Blade and what they're going to do with Mahersha Ali down the road. So the idea of teaming up these megawattage stars in connected material in terms of like tone and focus is really exciting to me as well. And I tweeted about this as well. We got one section of the MCU that's branching off into the multiverse. And we got one section with Shang-Chi and Moon Knight and Blade that's branching off into mysticism and supernatural. And I just think those are such cool complimentary corners of comic book material to be covering. And so Oscar Isaac is a guy who comes in and elevates material already. And to throw him into that type of alchemistic type of formula is just a very interesting cocktail of high talent ingredients. And that's going to be fun to watch develop evolve and then cement itself as a cornerstone of the mcu and just to build on your point not only does it speak to the sort of new genre of film that they could now try out but i think it speaks to the sort of heroes that we're now getting if you look at the first class of avengers they're sort of very blue chip run-of-the-mill classic superheroes whereas not to say they're not done well but like if we really want to call it they're kind of white bread. Exactly. Perfect term. You know, uh, which is fine. That's where you have to start, of course. But now we're getting into like the nitty gritty, like picturing the next MCU team up with Moon Knight and Blade is drastically different from than what we just had. And that is exciting because as we've long said, uh, one of the MCU's biggest drawbacks is that it could be very formulaic and that a lot of it could feel the same. But now with this injection of, as you said, mythical, sci-fi... Uh, weirdness. 
weirdness, right, it is inherently going to move the superhero genre forward. I mean, to crystallize everything I think we're talking about, the most popularly shared comic book panel on Twitter of Moon Knight, as everyone has been speculating about what's going on and everything the last few months, has been him walking into the crypt saying, Dracula, you better have my money, you big fucking nerd. Like, this is such a strange, odd, chaotic, absolutely psycho character to introduce. And it is so unlike everything that's come before. And that's a good thing for what can be a vanilla, formulaic, factory, assembly line made Marvel franchise occasionally. So uh, pushing forward into weird new territory is only a good thing, in my opinion. Um, Now, just to talk about the show itself. I mean, there's no way it any darker than PG-13, right? Yeah, it's, it's not going to be darker than PG-13, but I could see it being a lot stranger than your average four-quadrant Marvel show. It's still going to be a blockbuster show. It's still going to want to try to attract as many viewers as possible, but I don't think they're going to neuter Moon Knight to the degree that he's now suddenly like a Disney prince. Um, and now in terms of who they could get to helm said the series you know as i said to you they got uh the guy who's the guys who did bad boys three um who are muslim to do the miss marvel series really do you cool. see him do you see them going down that same route here and if so who would you like to see well it's tough because as we talked about there's not a ton of notable jewish filmmakers that maybe move the needle. I mean, there's a ton of Jewish filmmakers, but the ones that you're really thinking of, Darren Arnofsky is probably not going to do it. Spielberg definitely isn't going to do it. Uh, There's some problematic ones like Woody Allen and Brian Singer that we wouldn't want them to do it. J.J. Abrams is with Warner Media. So that left me with one option, which again, he might be too big of a name, but Sam Raimi, a guy who is now entering the Marvel Cinematic Universe with Doctor Strange 2, who is a Jewish filmmaker, that would be a really interesting get. Now, is he going to do a, a TV show? I don't know. But that was kind of the first logical name of that list. And then last thought here. Do you think the Moon Knight show is the first time that w- we see him? The first time we see the character Moon Knight? Correct. Yes. Yes, I do. So you don't think that he pops up in any film before that? You think that he's going to be debuted in a series? It's always possible, but yeah, I think that he will be debuted in a series, uh, in his own series first, because it's such a specific, unique, out-of-the-box character that it would be difficult to properly introduce them in someone else's project and then maybe have this huge 180 tonal shift when he shows up in his own. Gotcha. Okay. That's what I think. Now, this is something we're super excited about. Another end of the spectrum of the superhero world. Speaking of castings. Yeah, speaking of castings, news last week that both Jared Leto and Joe Manganiello will reprise their roles as Joker and Deathstroke, respectively, in Zack Snyder's Snyder Cut of Justice League coming to HBO Max next year. First of all, right off the bat, this cements where we thought we were going in that Snyder's cut is going to be drastically different than what we got on the screen in 2017. Having said that, is that a good thing? Now, Justice League, the movie, the theatrical cut, 
theatrical cut, as we've discussed on this pod, is a disaster of poo-poo. And I'm saying that politely in PG, because now since we're talking Marvel, we might have some young listeners out there. But Snyder's cut, oh my God. Bringing back two controversial elements that provoke divisive reactions from projects that either did or didn't really move forward as expected, as planned, as hoped. It just seems like a hodgepodge of craziness to me. And it decreases my excitement that wasn't that high to begin with. That's my personal take. So nobody, and I mean nobody, hates on Jared Leto's Joker more than me. Now, but that said, I have said that I do, I wouldn't be opposed to him getting a fresh chance outside of the calamity that was Suicide Squad. Now, when this news first broke, I was bummed because it sort of confirmed your main fears and what you just said, that it's going to be a hodgepodge of noise. But then the news that Deathstroke was going to be in it too, sort of what? I think I know where you're going with this. Okay, go ahead. No, just because I know you, you're such a Batman fan. I feel like you're getting hyped because this means if we have more Batman villains, it has to be more Affleck Batman. Am I in the vicinity? Well, yes, yes. But really, I'm talking about episodic structure, right? Okay. Let's. All right. So, I mean, look, Darkseid and Steppenwolf are the villains of this, correct? So yeah. how at one time could Batman be dealing with that and then dealing with the Joker and all, all of his bullshit? Like, it doesn't make sense that those things would be occurring at the same time. What I think it means is that, well, hopefully it'll take place in Batman's past. And that since this is a four-part series, theoretically, there could be one part that's a Batman part that'll fill in all the blanks with Ben's Batman that we never got and make it pretty much an hour-long Batman short film, right? That would explain perhaps how his Robin died, would give us more of the warehouse fight scene that I praise nonstop in a one-verse-one fight with Deathstroke. You don't include Deathstroke if you're not going to have the two fight, right? So that, pretty much con- so that pretty much confirms a very cool thing that I've always wanted to see. I've o- always told you the number one thing I want my, my Batman to do is kick ass, is to see that kinetically fluid, almost Saiyan-esque style of fighting where every move leads to the next and you can't lay a glove on him. Zack Snyder is the only one to give us that so far. And so what this casting news tells me is that he's, what you just said, he's building an, a mini arc around Batman. And that, to me, excites me. Now, that said, if they're a part of the future nightmare world or are somehow involved in Darkseid getting the mother cubes or god forbid it's one of those instances where the villains and the heroes have to team up for against a greater enemy oh that is worst case scenario that is worst case scenario but okay bats me and you will be on the same time the same side just this once (laughs) oh my god my my skin is here's the thing though okay you know finish off sorry but my point is so i'm going to choose hope and i'm going to choose that this leads to a sort of batman centered tale that fills in the past of Ben's Batman and gives us 
what we would have somewhat gotten had he stayed in the role. Here's my reaction to everything you just said. That is an extremely logical argument that you put together, but that you were able to put together only because you're a plugged in entertainment writer with a knowledge of Batman. Your average fan, who is not me or you, spends every day obsessing about this stuff, is going to be confused, A, didn't we just get a movie about this a few years ago that was terrible? Why is this different? B, they don't even know what the Snyder Cut is because outside of, again, people who are very passionate about this, it has not permeated the mainstream whatsoever. And C, now they're getting a return of a crappy Joker they also rejected a few years ago right on the heels of another billion-dollar Joker movie. So that just further confuses your average, average everyday Joe Schmo ticket buyer. But is now, that such a thing? Is that such a thing in today's age of an endless stream of content nonstop? Is there such a thing at this point? Yes, because I get questions every single day from either my parents or friends who don't really follow entertainment or just random people on Twitter asking, like, I don't understand why X, Y, and Z because ABC. It is so easy to get confused when you're not following the development of things like this on an everyday basis like you and I are, like our film Twitter bubble is. So for HBO Max to be investing $100 million into this, it is so odd to me because it, it seems to me, to just be an appeasement of the hashtag release the Snyder Cut movement, which is- Is that a bad thing? I I will say that it's a bad thing in the sense that I don't think it's going to commercially appeal to a wider audience nor be understood. But I do think building on top of that, that on its face, and I'm writing about this for Observer, it'll drop this week, but on its face, when the strategic business sense and commercial sense may not- fully coalesce on its face, there's more subjective machinations at work. And what I mean by that is that $100 million, $70 million for an HBO Max, you know, Snyder Cut may not be the best mainstream commercial play, but it says to me that DC wants to go back into business with Zack Snyder moving forward. And that is something that raises its own questions to me. That is its own podcast for its own day. So I'm not going to delve into that too much, except to say I don't agree because I just simply think there's way too much baggage there for, for them to go back at this point. I agree, but, but then why do it? To appease the fans because HBO Max is struggling. That's why. And because I don't think this delivers the, the kind of knockout home run they want. What? It's Batman, dog. It's Batman and Superman. No, I mean that seriously. What what bigger playing cards could you possibly ask for? Uh, I think being in the superhero business is good. I think continuing the conversation around a Batman, a Superman, a Wonder Woman is good. And I agree with you there. I'm just not sure if outside of the film Twitter bubble, this matters as much as we think it does. It, it, I could promise you this. I could promise you this. If... If he gives us a Batman Deathstroke fight, that will permeate the culture. Guaranteed. I'll cut through the clutter, you think? Yes. I tend to agree with that sentiment. Especially because if it's Ben is still a big name with the whole vibe of him coming back to the role. Again, look, a lot needs to go right for this to be good. The chances of that are very small. On a scale of 10... I'm at like a 4.5.
in terms of how hopeful I am of it being good. But these castings, just to tie a bow on this all, if handled correctly in the way that I said, it builds up hype. If it goes down the way that you and I could both see it going down and it just becomes Joker, Deathstroke, Batman, Superman, trickle this out. That'll be a fucking nightmare. So good and bad. I'm going to hope for good, but I could see it going bad. Let me ask you before we move on quickly, if the four part Snyder cut miniseries on HBO max is the same quality as Batman V Superman, will you be satisfied or not? putting you on the spot no well i i because okay on the whole it's just as good like i i can't dig into what parts about it i do and don't like like if the batman stuff slaps well of course you'll be happy about that and if so if they fix everything else right and make it not shitty or as shitty as it was which is a very low bar to clear and then add in a dope Batman backstory, and then you get Superman and his black cape, and look, man, it's the Justice League, and we got robbed the first time. You're, I mean, we're talking about the most iconic superhero team that there is, and they messed it up the first time. So you're assuming it's going to be bad, and that weighs down your hype for it, but if you look at it in its best light, this could be a correction of the Justice League. And not just that, but it could be an expanded vision. So until I'm proved wrong, there's no reason for me to not be hyped about that. I believe it's impossible, given that it'll be a singular vision, for it to be any worse than the theatrical Justice League we got. I will say that. God, God for my sake, I hope so. <laughs> if I- we have to do a post-Snyder Cut pod where I'm just like, depressed that's gonna be a tough tough lesson that will be our first drunken pot i think (laughs) but listen we're gonna be coming back to the snyder cut of justice league a million times between now and when it finally comes out one thing we'll probably bid adieu to for quite a, a long time is mandalorian season one because we're gonna be way focused on these new episodes that are coming again first episode is friday this is kind of a big deal folks to paraphrase Ron Burgundy. 52 minutes long. Yes. That's, I mean, that in and of itself tells you something about where we're headed. But where we've been is Mando season one. And after tough sledding in our last pod with episodes five and six, it is so laughable how much better episodes seven and eight truly are. I mean, it is not. How did that happen? Tell us, Brandon. Well, I think episode seven and season one as a whole, and I wrote about it today for Observer, benefits from Kareel. I, I know I'm pronouncing that Queel. wrong. Queel? Queel. Like Quill, but Queel. Like Wheel, but Quill? Queel? Correct, yeah. <laughs> so I think his tragic sacrifice is kind of Mandalorian at its best. And I mean that- It's Star Wars at its best. I might say that too. You know what? I might. Because it's very efficient how they create his character. He was uh, an indentured servant to the Galactic Empire for years. We have the same notes, Brandon. I love it. incredible. 
Sometimes we, we hate each other and sometimes we're completely on the same page. So long story short, I don't even need to go through the whole spiel, but he is the best character creation in season one, in, in my opinion. And I, and I mean that he feels very individual and singular and not like an archetype, like Baby Yoda, like the Mandalorian. That's not a knock on them. It's just he is an actual creation with a real backstory. He adds thematic pathos in his complete and utter highlighting of freedom and individual choice. And on top of all that, in episode seven, he explains to Mando how through patience, repetition, and affirmation, he reprogrammed IG-11. And that is the same exact formula that Mando is now going to use to be a father to Baby Yoda. And I think that's a beautiful mirroring type of advice. And it goes to show you how this small supporting character, Quill, basically represented the thematic pathos and underlying message of Mandalorian. And I think that was really, really well done. And that's why episode seven to me is great. I love how you led with that. Cause at the top of my notes are the, the fact that they turned Queel into such a lovable, memorable character in essentially less than an hour and a half. I mean, he's probably on screen for no more than throughout the course of the show. I don't know, 30 minutes maybe. Yeah. But I said, that is Star Wars at its best, to turn this obscure, somewhat grotesque side character and give him one of the more complex backstories. Yeah. Um, that to, point of view is, is unbelievable. The indentured servitude, that's actually something I want explored more. Exactly. Like, the idea that you could survive being with the bad guys in this world is not something that they've ever had. Pretty much, if you were on the Empire, you died. So they're like the bad guys don't really live. Um, and the fact that his I have spoken line is almost Yoda-esque because yeah. it's a combo of simple humor, but also sage wisdom. Yes. And that is an incredible creation. And him being so soft-spoken and a man of few words contrasts the character development of Mando, which I've complained about. He is efficiently constructed, where I feel Mando's character could have used a little bit more externalization, even though he's also a soft-spoken character. So I just thought that juxtaposition was interesting as well. And I think it speaks to a thing that we've talked about on this podcast a lot, how we think the show is at its strongest when it's telling its main story. Yeah. And even though Queel is only a tangential part of that main story he's still involved with the main story and that is why we enjoy this one so much more because it, it is advancing the plot the way that they work ig back in we hadn't seen him since episode one and and not only do they work him back in but they're able to use him to develop both him both itself and quill so it's as you said it is efficient and that to me is Star Wars at its best, telling a hero's journey in a such a consumable form. Absolutely. And I mean, I, let's just jump into episode eight, since we're talking about IG-11 and put it all together. They managed to imbue yet another droid with genuine emotion and elicit an actual response to you, even though you know it's nuts and bolts and wires. It, it's just... John Favreau is a bit all over the map as a writer throughout season one. 
And yet in these last two episodes, the mission is clear. We got to take out the bad guys and free ourselves from this overlooming threat of constantly being on the run by bounty hunters. Like, cool, great. And episode eight opens with your favorite scene of the entire show. And maybe I think what you said, entire Star Wars, and that is them pinned in the bar, basically having to shoot their way out for survival. I well, we skipped the, the first scene with the two stormtroopers. Okay. One of which is played by Jason Sudeikis. Yeah, um, that, is, that is Taika Waititi at his best. That whole scene, that sort of obscure, bizarre humor. The way that they're just like talking like two Joes who are on the job. Stop that. Identify yourself. I am IG-11. I am this child's nurse droid and require that you remind him to me immediately. A nurse droid? I thought it was a hunter. Aren't IGs usually hunters? Yeah, well, evidently this one's a nurse. I I'm sorry, nurse, but you're gonna have to get out of here. Are you refusing my request? No. I'm telling you to get out of here. It's in stark contrast to the world of Star Wars that's always filled with dense locations and terms and all that stuff. So just to hear two guys chop it up about, hey, did you hear the boss is being a nut job today? Like, careful, you know what I mean? The it's two a, stormtroopers being regular people is a wild concept to me. Yeah, yeah, but that is, you know, it's even in those small scenes where it's just two dudes talking that the show shines. And it's humorous too. It's, it's moments of levity that actually land and then lead to an unbelievable setup in terms of what comes next. And that is IG bashing them both, reclaiming the child, swooping into the village on his speeder while just taking everybody out. I love the start of that action scene that then launches in, in, even into a bigger battle. So outside of Rogue One, Chapter 8 is my favorite Star Wars thing of all time you really get your our first taste of Moff Gideon and that he adds a certain lore and gusto and threat because he tells us, you know, we find out he's the one who tells us that his real name is Din Djarin. Yeah. And so he adds this prestige and this actual tangible threat that this show desperately needed because now there's a true counterbalance to our hero. We have that sort of archetypal villain that'll raise the bar for the show as a whole i agree completely i wrote here knowledgeable equals terrifying and what exactly I meant, exactly what you said this is a worthy foe who isn't just messing around on let me try to punch mando in his face this is a whole different level of battle and so this is why i think this is star wars at its best this is following a that hilarious scene so you're going from moff's genuine threateningness to the humor of the troopers and back and forth and you're into the plot so right now the drama the writing the characters it's all working and then i as you said when ig and he like busts into town spinning around shooting his guns it's unbelievable um and this western 
battle drama taken to its sci-fi blockbuster extremes, you know? Yeah. And Alone then, gunmen. So as he does that and he hops off his bike, this finally gives Mando his chance to, like, bust out. And in this moment, they play the show's theme song, which you only really do in epic scenes. I know that the only time that they use the Breaking Bad theme song was in the second to last one when he left the phone off the uh, hook. So they are letting you know that this is like the hero moment, right? This is it. And he busts out, kicks a guy, shoots the guy, the bass hits. And I wrote a whole post on this. In that moment, I was like, oh, fuck, Star Wars. Like, <laughs> this is it. I, get, I was thrilled. I was truly thrilled. And it doesn't let off the gas from this point forward for the rest of the entire show. And I think it does such a good job of balancing massive moments of spectacle with smaller character-specific moments that just make you nod your head and laugh. So they're battling, they're doing all that. Moments before, they're pinned down in the bar. And while Carl Weathers is talking about strategy on how they're going to get out of this situation, he pours himself a drink and just starts taking shots which they don't bring attention to it. They don't mention it. It's just this one little thing he's doing while explaining other stuff that is so pitch perfect for this guy's kind of grizzled bounty hunter, like, oh, we're fucked now type of character and situation. And it's small moments like that that match perfectly with, all right, let's go through these doors and start messing people up. That is so cool. Uh, what I particularly really like about it as well is they give – uh, Baby Yoda, another major force moment where he blows the flamethrower back on the fire stormtrooper and shows how powerful he can be. Uh, they drop some some interesting illusions. She says, Cara Dune says, I don't want to be taken alive and put in a mind flare. I don't know what that is. I don't know if they've ever mentioned that in Star Wars before, but I'll guarantee you season two picks back up. Um, and then I also really liked how, while this great battle is going on, they actually, and upon second rewatch, I appreciated it more. They do a very solid job that is not distracting at all of setting up season two. Usually, and we've spoken about it for the Snyder Cut, uh, for Batman v Superman setting up Justice League, usually when you start looking forward to set up what's ever next, it feels ham-fisted and haphazard and really takes you out of the moment. But here, him talking to the other Mandalorian about what he needs to do with the child and how he needs to get them to their home, all while being on the run from this invading force, it's actually very organic and really interesting and compelling and fits with everything we've now seen from season one and how he does interact with the other characters. So I thought that was an efficient use of storytelling. It does feel sort of rushed, though. I feel like he gets his jetpack and then IG blows himself up in an emotional callback to the pilot. What was a joke the first time is now being used in a legitimate dramatic scene here, which again to me speaks to the power of Star Wars at its best. And I will say that in this one, it also, it's particularly violent. The scene yes. where, yeah, which is a new, again, a new facet of star wars that i would love to see when i used to do weekly game of thrones recaps i would always do like awards and categories at the end much like we're going to do for the star wars prequels in a moment and one of my awards every year was best kill and this this week for episode eight i had to give it to 
the stormtrooper that the female Mandalorian just dumps into the, like the fire pit oh. that helps her melt steel. I was like, yeah, it's oh, a brutal a scene. That's a brutal scene. So but, yeah, this hit every point that you could want action, drama, humor, sci-fi, violence, emotional character moments for non-organic beings it it laid the plot for what's to come a sick little tease with the dark saber so yeah outside of rogue one this is you know for me as good as this has ever been it was more enjoyable upon second watching this conclusion but it also drove home the point to me that episodes one and two solid episodes seven and eight really solid half the season i could have done without i would include episode three as well what happens in episode three again that's the one where he shoots his way out of town and the rest of the yeah okay yeah i'm adding, i'm adding three to mandalorians the come to save him that still means that more than a third of this season of television i could have absolutely done without yeah fair i'm, so it's like, I'm not gonna fight you yeah so that that's me especially because you're saying like this is star wars at its best but if I'm judging TV, I have to judge it on a season basis, not just the specific episodes. Yeah, but, and your Star Wars bar is higher than mine is. It is. I, honestly, unfairly high to a degree. Right. I'm constantly chasing that original trilogy high. Uh, yeah. Inject it into my veins. So that was like the first time, like, except for when I watched Rogue One at the end when they blow themselves. Oh, spoiler alert. <laughs> For Rogue One, I guess. But <laughs> yeah. um, when they blow themselves up and then the next scene is Darth just tearing shit up, I was like, whoa. And then this too. I was like, okay, I get it now. So more of this, please. You, I can't wait until a uh, psychologist analyzes both of our psyches based on our, our podcast. Star because War- they're going to be like, wow, Eric really loves the hyper-violent deaths in Star Wars. <laughs> I mean, I just think when it's the most grounded, it's at its best, right? Like that when when you could tie in inherently sci-fi themes yeah. and sort of superhero-esque arcs with the whole Jedi plus human drama, that's the moneymaker right there. And that's why it does so well. And that's why it was good to see Mando get his ass kicked throughout much of the season too, because it was a little bit more realistic. Uh, one thing I cannot wait for as well is dunking on the Star Wars prequels. It's all part of our Star Wars Rewind heading into season two of The Mandalorian. We're just going to jump right into our you know, and weekly awards and categories because we don't need to rehash every little bit about something that's been arguably the most dissected piece of pop culture of the last 20 years, arguably. So let's just jump in first. The real MVP award to the Star Wars prequels in my mind, there's literally only one answer to this, and it's Ewan McGregor. Yes, the casting. Yeah, I mean, he had the impossible, unenviable task of stepping into a, a role originated by the great Sir Alec Guinness, the only actor to ever score an Oscar nom for his work in Star Wars. Now, despite the god-awful dialogue, the uneven focus, the terrible characterizations, the obsession with cramming every single frame of footage with so much CGI throw up that you don't even know what the central focus is. Ewan McGregor is the only element that comes out unscathed. His Obi-Wan Kenobi is full of pathos, convincingly kind of comes of age across the trilogy. We, we see him develop into the legendary Jedi, Jedi Knight that we later know. 
he is this extremely powerful general, but also one who's kind of become filled with regrets by the time Revenge of the Sith comes to a close. It's this very fascinating, contradictory swirl of important emotional elements and just good acting amid a sea of bad. So McGregor does a great job, and there's clearly a reason that he's getting a Disney Plus series. Yeah, look, man, this this was bad. Um, I would say first watch, correct? No, I had seen them before. Okay. Um, but the casting as a whole, I think, is good. Natalie Portman would go on to be a star for the next twenty plus years. Liam Neeson is still a star. They get uh, Christopher Lee to play Count Count Dooku. So very cool. Yeah. So the casting is there, and. Could you imagine how bad these line readings would be if this cast wasn't, if most of this cast was not superb? Because we see it in real time, what, how bad the lines sound when it's compounded with a terrible performance. So I would say for a three film run that had a lot go wrong, the casting and its bones are strong. Yeah, that's a fair MVP. But, of course, if we got to stick with casting, we have to talk about the dark side of casting. We're going to go the Jar Jar Binks Award for the film's worst performance. And now, while I think Jar Jar Binks is the worst character, I absolutely do not think that that actor gave a bad performance in what he had to do. That's not my pick for this. My pick for the worst performance goes to Jake Lloyd and Hayden Christensen for the dual portrayal of young and old Anakin Skywalker. Uh, Now, they were not put into a situation to succeed, much like every single quarterback the Washington football team has had over my lifetime. Uh, It was going to be very difficult for either of them to elevate what was lackluster material. But at the same time, they didn't do themselves any favors with this kind of stilted and wooden delivery. Jake Lloyd gets a pass for being a kid for sure. And you really can't harp on that too much when someone's nine years old. You just can't. But Hayden Christensen, who, who has been decent in other movies, was never remotely believable as this dark and tormented character. You specifically sent me a hilarious text today that I think kind of encapsulates his performance. If you want to enlighten the folks. Yeah, I said he's got the emotional bandwidth of an eight-year-old kid he's he's got this out-of-bounds temper that flares up out of nowhere he's super moody and sour and i get that that is sort of the point right like he's a very broken person but at the same time it doesn't come off as dark and disturbed it comes off as childish the entire time now i will say the character in general is also terrible because he's sort of a dumbass. He's the one to turn in Palpatine. And then when he's when it's time to choose between him and Mace, he kills Mace. Uh, chops Mace's arm off, and then Palpatine zaps him. Okay, okay. He cuts. Oh, no, I off. agree with you. The plot mechanics are all dumb. Please continue. So, all right, because it just so he kills Mace in exchange for the key to saving Padme's life. What, as soon as he brings that up, Palpatine is like, yeah, one person is, one guy has done it, but together we'll figure it out. And then uh, Anakin is like, all right. And then he goes to kill some kids for him. He never even questions like, 
wait, you, you're telling me that you don't know how to do it? Like we can't just go do it right now? So on top of being a whiny pain in the ass, he's like a dumb, like he's a dumbass. Like he got absolutely played. None of the plot mechanics make any sense. And especially for his turn to the dark side, when literally 15 minutes before he was telling Mace Windu, Hey man, this dude's a bad guy. Yeah. But I, well, I think the central idea of like saving your loved one's life, I could see that how that could make you do rash things. But like bring it up to Yoda. Like, you know, like, yeah. man, like let's talk it out among the Jedi. Although they, they do a terrible job too of uh, listening to Anakin's problems and trying to nurture him. They, they do a horrible job, the Jedi. Why is he so angry in the first place? I'm glad you asked that question because it ties into everything you're saying. He is a dumbass and... It's so funny because by Revenge of the Sith, he's supposed to be a legend, like one of the greatest young Jedi ever. Like he is supposed to be LeBron James rookie year going into like LeBron James champion. That's, that's what the prequel trilogy is supposed to show. And they tell you that over and over, but you never get that sense by what you see on the screen because he is whiny and moody and terrible. Now his reasons for being so pretty sound on paper. He was born into slavery, freed by Liam Neeson to become a Jedi, but not his mom, which is a whole other uh, problem about the Jedi selective morality when it suits them and their needs only. We'll talk about that maybe on a different pod when I can just vent on how bad the Jedi are. Uh, and then his mother dies uh, by, the, by the hands of the Sand People. He commits mass murder, including innocent Sand People that had nothing to do with it and gets off scot-free OJ style and is then just rewarded <laughs> throughout until he's not allowed to become a master, even though he's on the Jedi Council. Okay. Yeah, so but- basically like saying, okay, you, you didn't win MVP, even though you might have deserved it, but you did win the championship. So he's, and I, and I hate to be so reductive when I say this, but he's just a little bitch boy. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, and I need to articulate that, but yeah. I guess like the biggest point here is that it it all sounds good on paper, right? When you explain it like that, everything that you just said, you sort of see the grandness of Darth Vader and who he was. Yeah. But when it's played out on screen, it never sort of has that gravitas feel, no. and that all comes down to casting. Yes, the writing is terrible, but George Lucas, who I have here as well botched these films to such an extent that I sent to you in a text that it makes you wonder if the first time was just luck. Well, it's because the first time he had creative collaborators, he wrote and directed star Wars one, then handed off uh, screenwriting and direction duties on the second two. He helped craft the story, but screen, the screenplay was written by different writers and he didn't want to direct because he, he has himself said a million times he actually doesn't love directing. He more loves creation. Here with the prequels, he had complete creative control. And, and we'll get to the folly of, of that a little bit later when I talk about what could have been with the prequels. But yeah, I, I mean, listen, Lucas is a visionary who changed film forever. And even in the prequels, changed film forever with what we could do with visual effects but his ability to craft a compelling narrative with characters that are emotionally resonant and sensical was non-existent in this effort. 
And now one more here for my Jar Jar Banks. It is the Jedi Council. You'll say as a whole. I want to say specifically, when they go to apprehend Palpatine, there are, what, four of them? And they just get absolutely steamrolled. Yeah. He cuts through three of them in a second. And it's just and those like, are all Jedi masters. Too. And you guys are the one telling your prodigy that he's not on par with you guys. And you don't even get a single block in. They just got mowed down by this old man who hadn't wielded his sword, sorry, saber for God knows how long. So I just think it is inexcusable given that you've been, I get that they're trying to express how strong he is, but given how long you've been building up his turn to just allow him to steamroll through what's supposed to be like the greatest force of good in the galaxy is was a huge mess. He should have, they should have fought back a little bit. He still cuts them down, but the way that they were just absolutely dominated for me was pitiful. But uh, props to Ian McDermott for delivering like the most hammy dialogue in the best way possible. That was like over the top cheesy, but enjoyable. No, I am the Senate. Yeah, it's insane. (laughs) It's, It's fun though. Yeah, it's so it's so bad, but fun and like no, no, as yeah. just, his little face contorts. It's, it's amazing. But yeah, I mean the Jedi just get clowned. The the entire prequel trilogy is a showcase in how the hubris of the Jedi led to their downfall at yeah. every at every stop. Yeah. All right. Well, that was the worst performance. How about the Han Solo award? for the best performance from a non-Force user. Listen, they do have some names in this in this trilogy, but, like, I went with Natalie Portman by default. She's certainly committed when she has more to do than just be a monotonous teenager in the first one. Uh, I mean, like, Jimmy Smits is always good in everything. He plays Bail Organa, but he doesn't really play a central role in this. Like, Liam Neeson is good, but he's a Force user. So... It was kind of hard because of how bad the scripts were to really highlight a single non-Jedi performance. Well, so that's why I went with Samuel, the human person, not who he plays, because he adds what I think two and a half of these films lack, and that's energy. You know, they're, they're, they're so drawn out and slow and full of Trade dense. politic banter. Yeah, when just dense. don't care about that. Like, right. you can the intergalactic bureaucracy. So he's sort of, every scene he's in, you sort of perk up a bit. And I find that that helps. And then you said mine is Ewan, because he carries these three films. If, if he had gotten this casting wrong, as bad as he got Anakin's, God only knows how abject these would would really be and a fun fact for samuel jackson george lucas asked him if he'd like to be in the star wars prequels and he said under one condition my lightsaber has to be purple and george lucas said uh, the good guys have, have blue and green the bad guys have red samuel jackson said call me when you have a purple lightsaber and like <laughs> the next day he sent him like a design for a purple lightsaber he's like all right i'm in because he wanted to like find himself on on yeah. screen that's it's hilarious. exactly what you said. Like, let me get some energy. Let me get some difference in here. Yep. And you think that Samuel L. Jackson, you know, motherfucker, like the king of that would be distracting, but he's not. He's actually quite good as Mace Windu. You forget that he's in these. It's yeah. like, oh, yes, yeah, Samuel L. Jackson was in Star Wars. Like, I feel like that's sort of a very slept on fact. 
It really is. And I do like that last duel, though, because it goes to show you why he was considered the best swordsman of the Jedi Order. I know, right? But in a perfect world, we would have gotten so much more of that. Yeah, big time. All right, well, let's move on to our Anywhere But Earth favorite planet and locale award. I'm going bu- to butcher this one, so I'm, I'm just going to go. All right, go. Coruscant. Oh, Coruscant. That's mine, too. Hey. Coruscant. Beautiful city. Love yeah. it. Love it. That, yeah. That's it. It was just an awesome city. Like that, it was, it was L.A. in space. Yeah, so for as horribly overstuffed with CGI bullshit as it is, I love Coruscant because it's the capital city of the Republic. It's the home to both the Senate and the Jedi Order. And this is super nerdy, but in a lot of the canon novels, they really help to kind of build out the social structures and cultural importance of Coruscant kind of across like the socioeconomic spectrum because this is like, you know, futuristic city. Everything's like thousands of stories high, but the lower you go, like the shittier the world gets and the grimier it gets and like the more crime ridden, the, the lower me levels. Give that go. Star Wars. Give yeah. me that. Please. So, even in the prequels, it's not as interesting in terms of like the thought experiment versus the execution. Dude, but it's my brain really- just exploded. A crime drama about Coruscant police. Boom. They, they, they've done a lot of like canon novels about like the underbelly of uh, Boom. Coruscant and things, things you would really enjoy. So it's also cool too, with the benefit of the original trilogy hindsight, to see what was once the zenith and center point of the Jedi Order that is now extinct in the movies we grew up with. So I thought that was cool to see too, even if it still might be just CGI bullshit for 90% of it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, how about the May the Force Be With You Award for the best line of dialogue? You want to go first on this one? You look excited. Take it away. No, no, no. Because you you said it to me today. Okay, so that is one of my favorites. It's not my answer for this one. So I'm glad we have different ones. I think the best line of dialogue in the sequel tr- in the prequel trilogy is, so this is how Liberty dies with thunderous applause. I have the same one. That was my backup. Let's All go. right, there we go. We're on the same page. Boom. It is probably one of the few actual poetic lines of the prequels that isn't either completely flat miss the mark cheesy as we just discussed with palpatine or outright inconceivable as something a real person with real emotions would actually say i also think it's really cool that it's kind of this synthesis i also think it's really cool that it basically synthesizes lucas's focus in the prequels for better and for worse on the politics of the old republic and the kind of groundwork that became the galactic empire uh people forget that the original trilogy was inspired by the war in Vietnam with America being the empire and the rebels being the Viet Cong. Star Wars has always been overtly political in the mind of George Lucas. So to kind of crystallize that idea of the rise of fascism and tyranny with this very beautiful line, I think it it pulls a lot of weight in what is otherwise a very dreary set of films. I'm going to share my screen with you right now just to show you that I literally had the same too. I love that. See, look, guys, me and Eric, <laughs> good dynamic because a lot of the times we disagree, but when we agree, it's always on the good stuff. Now, the other one that we both has is only a Sith deals in absolutes. Dot dot dot. I will do what I must. I think the second part is just as yeah. key as the first part because not only do I love to use that GIF all the time, it's one of my favorites. <laughs> 
just in terms of really anything like it just People under underestimate gif utility in terms of why we start to love something would you because it means that a line has lasted and broken through and that's a very important thing to me so like when, when you're trying to convey a feeling the fact that that's the scene and line that you think of is important you know a gif is a joke but the fact that that's how your brain works speaks to the way that a film sticks with you and us but the i will do what i must is actually my favorite part of that quote because <laughs> it's such a flex, right? Like, not only is he saying, like, all right, fam, like you, like, you chose this. You really want it to be like this? Fine. But he's implying that he's going to win. I will do what I must implies, like, all right, if I got to kill my pseudo son, got to do it to him, you know? <laughs> so it's both a flex of respect and power that you would come to expect from Obi-Wan, who is arguably the archetypal hero Jedi outside of Luke in the entirety of this tale. You have allowed this dark Lord to twist your mind until now, until now you have become the very thing you swore to destroy. Don't lecture me, Obi-Wan. I see through the lies of the Jedi. I do not fear the dark side as you do. I have brought peace, freedom, justice, and security to my new empire. Your new empire? Don't make me kill you. Anakin, my allegiance is to the Republic, to democracy! If you're not with me, then you're my enemy. Only a Sith deals in absolutes. I will do what I must. You will try. In a trilogy that was meant to be epic and grandiose, and frankly, about the rise of Darth Vader, which suggests a level of badassery, and in a, a, a prequel completely devoid of all of that, that too often comes off as cheesy and over the top and inauthentic, it is the only moment of true gangster sentimentality. Like, wow, Obi-Wan is not to be trifled with. And it was- But he's doing it respectfully. That's the coolest part about it, right? He's not only saying like, I'm gonna fuck you up, but he's also saying like, A, you're forcing me to do this. And B, I'm not gonna show you any love because of our past. I'm gonna, I am gonna do what I believe the right thing is. So it's just a glorious, glorious line. I think it's kind of a perfect bookend with his line in A New Hope about lightsabers, a weapon for a more civilized time. You know, like he is being a badass in the civilized kind of honorable way, which is very cool. It's, it's very samurai-esque, which is something that George Lucas drew a lot of inspiration from on the creation of the Jedi. How about the Rewind That Real Quick Award, which goes to an element or an aspect of, of the prequel trilogy that deserves additional attention so i literally rewinded this part because it's again just i said to you in a text that the third act is actually good if not borderline great and this is part of it right when yoda goes to confront palpatine and he walks in and the two guards sort of like snap to 
and he just casually with the flick of a wrist bodies them both that is such again as the character is on the whole he is inherently humorous but he's filled with sage wisdom right this is sort of the same thing he looks inherently unthreatening and therefore funny but sort of in the same way that he goes to show that he has incredible knowledge in this sense he goes to show that he has incredible power but it's done so in a funny way and that's what i really enjoy for as ridiculous as the cgi may look now seeing yoda do his thing is very cool to me i i hate the prequels like with a very fiery passion and i hate every time Yoda whips out his lightsaber because that just should never happen. And there was such a better way. See, that to- is lame. Wow. Okay. See, and now this is where I- But think- I like that moment. I'll say that. Okay. But as me being sort of the stand-in for the average fan, you're telling me that knowing what you know, that he's arguably the greatest Jedi of all time. How could you not want to see him in a duel? I don't get that. Mace Windu is the sword of the Jedi Order and Yoda is the shield. He is Grand Master of the Jedi because of his innate and unparalleled knowledge and ability connected to the Force and not necessarily connected to uh, aggression and attack. I think it makes attack? I, I think it makes his character much more interesting if in both the prequel trilogy and the sequel trilogy and the original trilogy, we never see him with a lightsaber. We see him be a general, be the mind of the Jedi Order and the mental strength of this forgotten religion. I don't think him flipping around like a ragdoll on crack cocaine is very attractive, nor do I think it feeds into the character that we've come to know. So, okay, that is a fair point. I think it's a little highbrow, but I do think it's a fair... That's a fair counterpoint. Because if, if you think, think about the baseline of what I'm saying, right? He's thought of as the greatest Jedi, right? As far as I know. As far as the average fan knows, he's set up as the guy. Combine that with lightsabers being the single coolest invention and action element of Star Wars. The two have to combine at some point. Now that said... You don't think when he gets in front of the door and says, if so powerful you are, then like why run? And then flips out the saber. You don't think that that shit was dope? No, I, I really don't like it. I think the, you say he's the most powerful Jedi ever. He was given the grand master role specifically because of his knowledge of the force and not because he's this elite duelist. It's because he's supposed to be the big picture thinker. So I think him using force abilities is great. But him flipping around like this, you know, Sesame Street, Sesame Street puppet that's gone rogue is a ridiculous sight to me that undercuts the character. Like, why, why make him be the Grand Wizard if he's just another grunt on the front lines with a lightsaber? Because this fucking film arc spent three movies talking about nothing. And then finally, in this third act, they cut it loose. And you go from big moment like iconic moment to the death of mace to the killing of the younglings to um to this to the duel between anakin and obi-wan i just feel like it is it is a deserved as we we like to talk about when we talk about mcu that third act hole in the sky this is that but it's deserved at 
this point because he put us through three films of tax code and <laughs> politicking that seeing, as far as I know, one of the most famous Star Wars characters doing the Star Wars thing, that was very cool to me. I understand where you're coming from. I just It comes off to me as this blatant fan service pandering that doesn't match what we know about the character and what makes the character so compelling and integral to the actual story as the kind of wise sage who usually guides our heroes on their journey. So uh, that's why it feels out of place to me and, and, I, and I really don't like it. I also think the actual fight scenes themselves are just like unintentionally hilarious. Well, I will say that's not aged well. It has not aged well. <laughs> so my Rewind That Real Quick Award is something that has aged perhaps the best in the entire prequel trilogy. And that is the lightsaber duel between Darth Maul and Obi-Wan Kenobi and Qui-Gon Jinn. It is the most balletic and operatic duel, far surpassing everything we saw in terms of action in, in the original trilogy. It's a pivotal moment for the development of Obi-Wan's character who must overcome the death of his master and surrogate father, Qui-Gon. And as Star Wars, The Clone Wars, and Star Wars Rebels have revealed in animation, it's a defining moment for Darth Maul, who becomes a very key character in those supporting uh, uh, TV shows. On top of that, as we get into the next award, it has a killer soundtrack. So, all right, put this in the Jedi Temple Award, which is the, the one element we keep in terms of humanities facing a nuclear apocalypse. We need to save one thing from the Star Wars prequels. It's Duel of the Fates by John Williams, easily. Yeah, well, it's both, I guess, the score and that whole scene. When Darth Maul busts out the red blade and then the one side pops out, but then the next side, like, that is, you know, it's working there. And that when... was in the trailer for The Phantom Menace. That people lost their shit over that in 1998 I, I, when that first trailer came out. I can't imagine. I really can't imagine. Crazy. And then you combine that with that iconic poster of like the Darth Vader shadow behind him. Yeah. People were probably through the roof hyped. I mean, I, you know, it was, it's been 21 years now. I can't imagine how big of a deal. Like I'm sure people probably what like slept outside to wait in line to go see it and shit like that absolutely they did and you have to remember all these trailers and promotional materials were received in theater like like, like avengers endgame like everyone was like this universally looks amazing holy crap wow and what so a fucking for, letdown i know for the turn like, you know and darth maul continues the tradition that lucas has and we got to give lucas credit of the best single best character design in sci-fi he is unbelievable at creating looks that are just iconic based on looks alone. Yes, certainly. But then I will just add in a part of that scene that I love is when they're being stopped by sort of those force field things and Qui-Gon Jinn like kneels down to pray. It's just like, again, that is Star Wars at its best. It's weaving this inherently insane sci-fi sword fight with deep thematic ideas of being close to your God when you're perhaps about to die. like, And as your protege has to watch on, it's powerful shit. So I will say that that is for as bad as episode one is, that is, that is as powerful and probably as iconic as Star Wars has been in my life. Like the Darth Maul scene is one of the earliest things in my brain that I could think of when I think of these. 
my brother and I talk about this all the time, but we, we've come to the conclusion that we think in those moments, uh, Qui-Gon knew he was going to die. And he, not necessarily that he was praying because he knew, but, but he was just centering himself and was understanding of the kind of perhaps chasm, chasm between him and Darth Maul in, in terms of uh, uh, ability. I, I think he knew what was coming and was just trying to do his best. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's sort of what I'm saying, right? Like, I didn't even think about that sort of in that sort of depth. Oh, yeah. We, we get nerdy about it, man. <laughs> no, that's good. I like yeah, that. so that is, I think everyone kind of universally agrees that of the tri- the prequel trilogy, that is arguably the best single sequence and, and worth keeping. Now, what about the Rebel Alliance Award for the best hero moment? Because as much as we want to clown these movies, there is ample opportunity for something heroic and amazing to happen in and of itself so i'm gonna choose as i've said on this pod the third act of revenge because i think that last hour or so is actually great and what these could have been it i mean look the cgi looks bad now i can't speak to how it may have looked at the time but you're getting iconic moments and twists and duels and everything that you came to expect from star wars in that third act it saves episode three from being just as bad as two and one i mean look they're all sort of bad but everyone agrees that episode three is not as abhorrent (laughs) as the first two and i think that's largely because the third act is legitimately thrilling That still to this day is a hill I'm willing to die on. I think the movie should have ended with that mask going on and you hear the first... Yeah. And then cuts to black. I still to this day don't know why they didn't go that route. None of that bullshit. No. Yeah, that... (laughs) But that just speaks to sort of the whole theme of this, that it was... There were some everywhere. There were some parts that went very right, but most parts went very wrong. I'm not as big of a fan as the third act as you. I do I do agree that it's the best of, of a bad bunch of movies. I just hate all of the story mechanics and kind of narrative leaps we have to make to get our characters positioned where they have to be. So my award for the kind of best hero moment, a little bit underrated and not really grandiose at all. It's when Obi-Wan tells young Anakin at Qui-Gon's funeral that he will train him. And I chose that one because Obi-Wan is my favorite character in the whole franchise. And I think this moment shows that how kind he is as a man. He, he's honoring his master's dying wish. He's caring for this young boy who, you know, doesn't really have a connection in the world now that he's separated from his mother. And he's taking him under his wing, even though um, the Jedi Council prefers that he not be trained at all. So kind of going out of his way to become this surrogate father to this damaged young boy really cements to me why Obi-Wan is the true hero of the saga in many ways. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. All right, we, we've kind of traversed this quite a bit, but what's the worst thing you can say about this movie? Or yeah, about this so movie? they are so uniquely bad that it makes me think of George Lucas just got lucky that he was at the right place at the right time. We say that at first Star Wars was sort of a glorified B film and that it sort of was the first of its kind, but something like that would have came along at some point. 
So these ones are so bad that I, and combined with how I feel about the OG three in terms of how they've aged and how I think if a, you weren't there at the time or B, if you don't see them as a very young kid, I don't think that they hold up combine that feeling with how widely disliked these are and from how top to bottom poorly constructed they are you wonder you do at least i do as you said he is a genius creator but when it comes to the actual ins and outs of trying to craft a film he's so exposed here that to watch these felt like a chore we had to push this pod back because I just, I could barely bring myself to watch these movies. Because who has two and a half hours in this day and age, especially with what we do, to waste time on this shit? <laughs> it's hard to find time to watch something that you know is crap. Yeah, exactly. That's, I didn't even watch Clones. I watched one and, and three, and, and that was it. I skipped Clones. That's I honestly respect that. I mean, my sentiment echoes yours. The worst thing I can say is that these are legacy-ruining legacy train wrecks of films that are more focused with shoving as much CGI crap into every single frame than they are with uh, cohesive narratives, well-thought-out well characters, and a quality bridge to the original trilogy. So... I have very little positive to say outside of what I've highlighted here in this pod, but I have to. So what's the nicest thing you can say about this movie? I say that they made a lot of money. That's my answer. <laughs> and that's it. That's it. That's my answer. I mean, listen, I, I said Duel of the Fates is great and there are elements of Revenge of the Sith that I like, but on the whole, these are terrible movies that I wish, you know, were not. <laughs> so I, so mine is, I've said my, and that just goes to show you how barren these films are that a we've had a lot of the same ones yeah and b i've had to use stuff sooner than i wanted to like i've said this twice now already but the third act i think is good <laughs> I, I i think the third act is borderline great in terms of star wars lore there's a lot thrown at you um i think it's sort of the first time that the cgi looks truly modern despite how poorly it's aged in comparison to the star Wars films that came before it, it does finally have that sort of modern feel. And then as we said, there's some great character moments, right? Obi-Wan, I will do what I must is some badass shit. Seeing Darth put on the mask for the first time is a big moment for me, not for you watching Yoda do the Jedi thing was cool because I've always presented as, you know, the old wise one. But you add in that sort of lore of not only him being the wise one, but also when like when the going gets tough, he could get scrappy as well. That's how you build legend. And so to me, it only adds to what I had previously thought of him and now what we've come to. Like, so now we know Baby Yoda, if trained right, could do that shit as well. So... Yeah, the third act to me is actually thrilling. And, that, and then I'll say Sith. So that came out in 2005, which means I was 12. That was also the first time that, as I talk about a lot the first times that I understood the Star Wars thing, Sith is sort of the first time that I took an interest in it, bought the toys, and asked my mom to buy me the DVD and stuff like that. So I think I know the answer to this question. 
But if you catch these prequels on cable, are you watching? If it is the Duel of the Fates fight or the Sith third act, yes. But otherwise, no. Yeah, I mean, I, I YouTube the Duel of the Fates fight once in a, every while. So I probably am not watching like period the end. Yep. Our last thing before we wrap this up, stuff that we think is cool that needs mentioning. I'm just going to stick with one, even though I have like 10 different kind of fun facts here. But the most important one is that other directors such as Frank Darabont, Ron Howard, and Steven Spielberg were all approached about directing the first prequel. And all of them turned around and encouraged Lucas to write and direct it himself. To quote quote Pretty Woman, huge mistake. (laughs) Huge, huge mistake. I I just, can you imagine what it would have had any of those guys tackle the first prequel and really crafted the story with input from Lucas in terms of the universe and the general overarching plot? I don't know, man. Frank Darabont, come on. You directed the Shawshank Redemption. I'm, I'm aware. That's why I'm saying that. Oh, are you saying it would have been bad or good? Yeah, I think that's a... Con- you don't like the Shawshank Redemption? No, but contrasting that style with this, I want a Spielberg, an adventure teller. Yeah, I would love Spielberg. That He's my number one choice of those three guys. But like, yeah. A Darabont Star-, Star Wars movie still intri- intrigues me. Definitely yeah, I suppose. But I, I still think it would probably not have been good, to be honest with you. I think... I think I, all three of those guys would have made a better movie than The Phantom Menace. That's what I think. Okay. Well, okay. That's not saying much, B, but sure. You, you could have that one. Fine. <laughs> all right. What's yours? You took mine. Oh, okay. Well, then there we go. That's the, uh, no, no, no. The uh, Purple Saber. Ah, it's a good one. But then I've turned this into sort of the stuff that I want to ask B award. <laughs> Why didn't Obi-Wan either A, knowing what a threat he was or b trying to help his old friend out why didn't he kill anakin eric that's an excellent question it is something i have tweeted about so many times because a exactly what you said a this is his surrogate son slash younger brother so why would you let him suffer the most painful death imaginable you have to go finish him off i know it's hard for you emotionally and physically but you have to do it because that's the honorable thing to do, not to let him suffer. I mean, we do it for deer that break a leg. Why wouldn't you do it for, like, the person you love most in this world? Number two, Knowing what a threat he could be. Your job as Jedi Knight and essentially what has become Yoda's second-in-command, given all the upheaval going on, is to ensure the survival of the Republic and the Jedi moving forward, by not killing Anakin, you have directly allowed the continued extinction of your own religion to take place and a tyrannical, genocidal government to control the galaxy. Huge mistake, pretty woman again. Huge mistake, Obi-Wan, and this, this is something why I think it's interesting on why he kind of sacrifices his personal life to look after Luke for the rest of his. He knows that he fucked up. Huge mistakes. A man filled with regrets. It is just inexcusable decision-making on his part on multiple fronts. Not often get the job done, Obi-Wan. Yeah, because they don't even bother to explain it. He just walks away. He must assume that he's just going to die. But like in in a universe where you can track people across quadrants and sectors, like why didn't you think that someone was going to show up and help him out? 
I just don't get how George, that nobody at any point read this script and was like, hey, George, uh, there's a pretty big, there's a pretty big plot hole here in this, in this, in this conclusive third act that you may want to clean up. I think it's hard to challenge the Godfather in his element. You know what I mean? Well, well it doesn't make it right. It doesn't make yeah. it right. Like some producer should have done that, but anybody doesn't he have friends who who could tell him the truth? Come on, he did in the seventies when he was screening Fucking Star ass. Wars for Spielberg and 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 De Palma. I wish they had taken a run through of the prequel trilogy. Yeah, God. All right, well, what that, what could have been? And I think that how bad these are play into why I'm not a Star Wars guy. Because in theory, these should have been the Star Wars of my childhood. The first one came out when I was six, all right? And then the second one came out, what, oh two when I was nine. So I'm right in the thick of Star Wars age. But they were boring as hell for kids. So I completely missed that part of childhood. That's why I say it wasn't until Sith that finally it was sort of an action driven film that i connected with it too much of a departure from the iconic original trilogy for older fans to enjoy and too focused on boring intergalactic politics for kids to enjoy missed the mark on every spectrum yep historic fuck up really if you think about it you know all right well that'll do it for the star wars prequels and armando season one recap be sure to tune in to the post-credit pod this weekend when we will, where we will be tackling the premiere episode of season two of The Mandalorian. We're going to get right into it as soon as we screen it. So uh, you guys have that look to look forward to this weekend. I am hyped. Of course you are. You just I am hyped. Dude, are you kidding me? In this year, with, with the lack of big-name films that we get, we're getting an hour-long Star Wars thing that – unlike the prequels, is a generally good Star Wars thing. You got to be excited, dude. Stop being such a downer. Come no, on. I am excited, too. I'm just making Get hyped. you extra excited. Let's go. Well, because, I yeah. Am, I am. Come on. We just did an eight episodes. You know I'm in. Well, all right. Perfect. I just want to see some Baby Yoda Force stuff. That's, that's yep. all I need. Yep. yep. <laughs> all right. Please follow us on Twitter at PostCredPod. Leave us a review, please. That would be fantastic. Yeah, that would be great. That would help us the cause. All right, peace, everybody. All right, peace, y'all. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius.